Welcome back to the program. Back in 1999, almost 15 years ago, Sun Microsystems then Gadfly in chief Scott McNeely made his famous statement that you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. There was a horrified response at the time that he had the nerve to say such a thing. Imagine someone telling the truth. The fact is that he was right then and all the debate from time to time about terms of service for Google and Facebook has really resulted in very little change in the private sector with respect to our online privacy. In the public realm, the Snowden revelations really only confirm what many have suspected for a long time. We have no privacy. So the question now is, should we just get over it or actually try to do something about it? And if so, what? Will some people opt out and choose to become a digital recluse? Or is all of this just the price of progress? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Julia Angwin. She's the author of the previous book, Stealing MySpace. She's an award-winning investigative journalist. And her newest book is Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. Julia Angwin, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. It's good to have you here. Is, in fact, this simply the price of progress, that to go someplace we haven't been in the digital world, in this case, this is simply the price we pay for it? Well, currently, it's the price we pay, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, I grew up in the Silicon Valley back when you used to pay money for software. You went to a store, (laughs) you bought it, it was shrink-wrapped, it cost $60. Now, we pay in our data, right? We want everything for free, but we have to give up our personal data for it. But there is and has been another way to deal with the technological world. Are you surprised, or in, in your research on and reporting on the book, have you been surprised at how few people, particularly before the Snowden revelations, how few people were concerned about this? I don't think it's surprising. I think, actually, that, that it's very confusing to know how worried we should be. The problem of giving up our personal data is we have no way to evaluate the true cost of it. Is it really going to cost us something down the line to give it up, or is it actually just sort of not that meaningful? The problem is, right now, we don't have any assurances of what could be done with our data. There are no laws that say you can't use data for this or that, except for like HIPAA or like things that just regulate certain aspects of data. But the vast majority of personal data that's gathered about us is basically unregulated. So we are uncertain about what will happen to it, and we don't have any assurances that something bad won't happen. Is there a danger, though, on the other side that too much regulation will have a dampening effect on the things people expect in the digital world? Well, that's true always with with regulation, that there's concern about too much regulation shutting down the economy. But we're not even close to too much regulation. We have absolutely no regulation. You know, I, I like to compare this to cars. You know, cars are really dangerous, but we get in them every day. And the reason is that we know that they've been designed to meet certain safety standards and certain and then if something goes wrong, we can sue and that we have some rights to dispute whether that was manufactured correctly. We don't have any of that with our data, right? We don't, it doesn't, we give our data away, they can do whatever they want. And we have no assurances and we have no legal rights over it. We've signed them away. And so I think it's perfectly reasonable to feel apprehensive about what could happen. The question people, I suppose, most often ask is, what's the harm? And you explore that dramatically in Dragnet Nation. I do, and I think that at the highest level, the harm falls into two categories. So one category is government surveillance. You know, when the government has so much information about us, I worry that it can chill our freedom of speech. We live 
you know, by this mandate in this country. It's a ballmark of our democracy that we feel we have the right to speak freely. But if we're in a world of ubiquitous surveillance, I worry, and I've seen it already true in my own case, that I've started to censor myself. I'm concerned about putting words that I think might be inflammatory into my email for fear that they might catch the eye of the NSA. And so I worry about that. And then on the commercial side, actually, I'm also worried that what's happening is so much is known about us, right? Information about us is power. And companies are already using that power to try to figure out ways to charge different prices, for instance, to different people. So if they know that I have five more dollars to spend than you, they can easily charge me that extra five dollars. And that's never been true before. Certainly we're seeing, and perhaps Facebook is the penultimate example of this, that younger generations are more and more willing to give up this information. Do you sense that that's going to change at some point as these millennials start to get older? Actually, that's a myth. You know, the data doesn't support the fact that children and young people don't care about privacy. In fact, they do. What they want privacy from, though, is they want privacy from their parents. So to my kids, I am the NSA, right? (laughs) So they're worried about me. And so the data shows that they're very effective at putting together strategies to defend their data against their parents. They have fake Facebook profiles that their parents don't know about and their parents are only friends with like the one that's sanitized or they'll have Snapchat, this instant messaging program that like dissolves their messages Mm -hmm. after they send them. So they do use a lot of privacy protecting technology. What are you finding in terms of the increased fear of what the government can do, particularly since the Snowden revelations? Well, I think the Snowden revelations have been so amazing. I mean, I felt like I was already pretty well versed and and pretty paranoid (laughs) before the Snowden revelations. And those documents have shown me that I wasn't paranoid enough. I would never have guessed, for instance, that they were stealing everybody's web video chats, um, as we saw the other day, or that they were snatching information as it went from Angry Birds to an advertising company, which declared whether you were a swinger or not. You know, there were lengths to which I just hadn't imagined that the government was going. And I think we're still watching these revelations unfold. The other side of that, of course, is that given that we're giving all this information to Facebook and Google and, and so many other companies, It's almost as if the NSA is just one more. What difference does it make? Well, so the NSA has an advantage, right? They do a lot of work themselves, but then if they can't get something, they can go to Google or Facebook and ask for it with a secret court order. And so the thing is, they're always going to be Google and Facebook plus more, whereas Google and Facebook are limited to what they can collect on their own. Talk a little bit about what you discovered as you began to examine and uncover your own digital profile. So I did an audit of where was my data, how how many people had it, and I found that, you know, there was a lot of information out there about me. For instance, I identified more than 200 commercial data brokers who buy and sell people's actual names and informations and habits. And of those, only a dozen would let me see my data because there's no law that requires them to let me see it. But of the dozen or so I saw, it was incredibly detailed and revealing, highly accurate in most cases. There were a few, actually, that were really wildly inaccurate, and I actually couldn't decide which one outraged me more, the one that had my number on my college dorm room that I'd forgotten, or the one that thought I was an unemployed single mother with no education. (laughs) Which one did disturb you more? (laughs) Well, I think I ended up on the side of the wrong one because that company, the one that said I was, you know, low income and 
un- an uneducated said that they use their data for instance. They said one way we sell this data is to hospitals that might be trying to determine whether you have the ability to pay for treatment. And I just sort of had this nightmare scenario flash in my head of like, my God, you know, I get injured in a car wreck. They take me to the hospital. They're like, oh, this person can't pay. Forget it. We're not fixing her, you know. Um, and and so I was just disturbed that this was such terrible information out there about me. So I want to come back to the investigation you did in East Germany. You looked at what the Stasi had done with information, the ways in which this information should cause people to really be concerned. Well, so it was interesting. I went to visit the Stasi archive in Germany, which is the archive of the secret police during the communist regime. And they were famously repressive. You know, they surveilled as many people as they could. They had lots of informants. People felt very unsafe and were afraid to speak up against the government. And what I found was two things. One, they only had files on one quarter of the population because basically it was a lot of work. They had to steam open people's mail and listen to their phone calls. They didn't have the technology that we have for mass surveillance. And then secondly, they, um, you know, really were successful, right? So the fact is, even with one quarter of the files, they were very repressive. So then the question in my mind was, okay, we have a government with 100% of our data, people's data in their files, how do we make sure they don't get as repressive? And I think that's the question I I think is most important. What kind of controls do we need to put in place so that government doesn't abuse our data? Is another danger of all of this what has been called the filter bubble, the fact that we get information which seemingly is tailored to what our interests are and therefore limits it to what our interests are at any given time and creates what Uh, this kind of long tail of self-reinforcing confirmation in so many ways. Yes, I call this phenomenon the hall of mirrors, but it's also called the filter bubble. And basically what it is, is especially online, there's this ability to customize everything. They, They call it personalization, right? So Amazon is personalizing its recommendations. Google personalizes the search results you get. The problem is that then personalization means you really are seeing not just what you want to see, but what they think you want to see, right? So this was most starkly demonstrated to me in the run-up to the Obama-Romney presidential election. Obama had, um, Google had a search result where if you search for Obama, after that, your subsequent searches would be have Obama news in them, even if they weren't about Obama. If you search for guns or something, it would mention Obama in the middle of your search results. But if you search for Romney, your subsequent search results didn't have that in there. There were no Romney results put into the middle of your search page. And so when I asked them about it, they said, you know, look, our algorithm showed that people who wanted, who saw Obama news wanted more of it, and our algorithm showed people who saw Romney news didn't. And, you know, they might be right, Obama won. But the fact is that I don't want them making that decision for me. You know, I want to see what I have asked to see, not what they think I should see. Given where we are in in the digital world right now and the way search works and the way these self-reinforcing algorithms work, is there really any practical way around that? Well, I quit using Google search. (laughs) I mean, that's a practical thing you can do. I started using something called DuckDuckGo, which is a privacy-protecting search engine. It doesn't store any information about me. It doesn't try to guess what I'm looking for, which, by the way, means I have to work a little harder. So you know how Google always fills in the rest of the sentence while you're typing? Mm -hmm. DuckDuckGo doesn't do that. But I get what I asked for. Why do you think that there has been such resistance in Congress 
particularly before the Snowden revelations, to really address any of these issues in the the private digital landscape? Yeah, two years ago, the Obama administration put out something called the Privacy Bill of Rights that as legislation that they hoped would pass. And what happened was basically neither side liked it. The private companies thought it was too restrictive and the privacy advocates thought it was too weak. And so it, it didn't have a consensus. And I think that's still basically the situation right now. There's no consensus on what would be the right line to draw on use of personal data. But it's worth pointing out that we're the only Western nation that doesn't have some kind of baseline privacy bill of rights. And so we should probably try to come up with one that just puts a bare minimum standard on what commercial data gatherers should do with the data they have. Talk a little bit about the Europeans and what they've done. So Europeans have a very different view of personal data. They see privacy as a human right. So they don't have these debates, by the way, about why does it matter and what are the harms. You know, what's interesting they basically just think it's human rights, it's about dignity. And they also have the history of, you know, genocide and war much more recently. And so they are more alert to the terror, terrors of profiling people by race or ethnicity. And so basically they have limits. You can collect data, but if you do collect personal data, you have to let the people who have, um, whose data it is see the data, correct the data. Sometimes they have the right to remove it. And then there are sort of data handling laws about sensitive data and how it needs to be handled. And sometimes, to be fair, those laws are um, not well enforced. So they have good laws on their books, but in fact, you know, the practices of privacy may or may not be actually any better on the ground. Do you suspect that we are going to continue to see here a greater erosion of privacy, even more than we have now? I don't know. I feel like the tide is turning a little bit. I mean, more and more people are using these privacy protecting services. We saw Snapchat is really popular. It allows you to sort of self-destruct your um, chats. Uh, there's privacy protecting software that has become popular. DuckDuckGo has seen a huge increase in their traffic since the Snowden revelations. I think it might be that we're, it's not that there won't be companies trying to protect, uh, invade our privacy, but I think there will also be a new crop of companies trying to protect our privacy. And right now there hasn't been a commercial market for that. So I see that market emerging. The other danger on the business side is companies trying to evade business regulation that's been put in place by Congress. Somebody made the comment recently that they never do email because the E in email stands for evidence. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I mean, Jimmy Carter just said he doesn't need right. email, right, because he doesn't want the NSA to surveil him. And I feel like, you know, if Jimmy Carter can't protect his emails, what's our hope? Um, so I, I think that's true. And also it's worth pointing out that most companies surveil their workers. So if you're at work, you know, you should expect that you're, everything you're doing is being monitored. So it's a great tool for surveillance for companies and, and workers don't have any rights to protest that. Is there a corresponding danger in all of us becoming too paranoid about all of this? Oh, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm not a particularly paranoid person. I try not to be paranoid. I try to be very realistic about this stuff. And I'm actually not sort of staying up at night sweating about it. But I think it's an important question for our democracy. Because if we give our government all this power over us and we don't police it and we don't make sure that they're not abusing it, it will be abused. The history has shown that power is something that has to be policed. And as a journalist, my job is to be the watchdog for government and commercial entities and make sure that they're not abusing their power. 
Talk a little bit about the, the increase in facial recognition software, even facial recognition software, which is now being incorporated into something like Google Glass that a lot of people have privacy concerns about. Yeah, I am worried about facial recognition technology because I think it's going to really change our concept of public space. Right now, when we go out in public, yes, there are some surveillance cameras, but we kind of figure, well, maybe no one's watching it right at this minute. Um, and But we have a veneer of anonymity, right, which I think is really helpful to civil society, the idea that we're not actually being identified as we walk down the street. But with facial recognition technology, which I imagine is coming down the pike very soon, most likely we'll be able to hold up our phone and just put a picture of someone and pull up all their information. And that's going to change how we relate to each other. And I think that people who don't care about corporate surveillance or don't care about government surveillance, they might well care about their neighbors surveilling them. Or they'll just get to the point where they say there is no privacy. They just need to get over it. And that may be the case. But I, what does getting over it mean? What does that mean? Does it mean you just live web stream your life? I mean, you know, <laughs> what what is it that you do to get over it, right? I think we all have a human need to have intimate relationships, to have um, personal conversations. I mean, I can't think of a single person who would say that they want to have the same conversation with their mother as they do with their boss, right? So I, I don't think that um, privacy really is a weird word. It means a lot of different things to different people. But when you think of it as control over your data, which is how I think of it, I think we all want control over our information in some in some respects. To what extent are the Snowden revelations something that's really changed everybody's view of all of this? I do think the Snowden revelations have been incredibly um, awakening for people. I mean, even people who probably will put themselves on the side of like, okay, we need all this data for, for to protect our security and against terrorist attacks. I mean, the fact is, these revelations have shown that the surveillance is so much more vast and sweeping than I think most people would have imagined, right? That every single phone call being placed in, in the United States, for instance, um, and the other thing is that the NSA is not really given an effective defense of how this has proven to be effective, right? So what we've seen is how vast the surveillance is and also not a huge return on investment, right? We have not seen a very quantifiable attacks thwarted. And in fact, that's essentially what the president's two advisory panels said to him is this phone dragnet is not that effective. And that's one reason I think he just said he was going to end it this week. And finally, one thing we've seen is that the Supreme Court has been pretty sympathetic to those that are collecting data. Right. The Supreme Court has been operating under what they call the third party doctrine, which is their view of the Fourth Amendment of what limits there are on searches and seizures is basically been a very originalist view of it protects the papers and effects in your home. So this Cops need a warrant when they come to your house. But the third-party doctrine is the court's interpretation, which is if you give your data to a third party, you have a lower expectation of privacy. And so that has been the operating principle for many years. Uh, only last year did Justice Sotomayor in a concurrence say that she thought maybe it's time to reopen that doctrine now that we stare so much of our important data outside of our own home. But that hasn't yet been picked up by the court. Julia Angwin. The book is Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. Julia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.